The story of Joseph is contained within this story of Jacob. Uh, and as we've seen, it's, it's all about how Jacob and his sons uh, ended up in Egypt in preparation for the story of the Exodus. But I think it's, it's really fitting that Genesis concludes with this story of Joseph. Uh, as I said at the start, it's, uh, the story of Joseph is longer than any other character that we see in Genesis. And we've seen that it's a very deeply personal uh, and emotional story. Joseph just keeps bursting into tears all the way through. And I think that's significant because what it tells us is that while this is a, a history book, it's not just about history. It's not just about recording the chronological events as they happen, as you would see in a school or university textbook. It's about relationships. It's about family. And we've seen that in Joseph's story, haven't we? Families that are dysfunctional and need reconciliation. Uh, Is there anyone here this morning who doesn't know firsthand the reality of family problems, family dysfunction? And as we read that story of Joseph and as we see how the Lord brings everything to this wonderful conclusion that causes us to cry out and to yearn and say, Father, you did it for Joseph's family, uh, please do it for, for our family as well. So we, we, we understand our own relationships in the context of this big picture, grand plan that God has for all of creation. But as we look at the grand plan, we see it in light of the relationships, God's covenant relationship with his people and the relationships of his people to one another in that covenant community that he forms. We can probably relate to Joseph's brothers and the fear that they had when Jacob died. Joseph might take revenge on them. Maybe he was just being kind to them while his father was alive because he didn't want his father to see uh, his family divided. But true forgiveness, forgiveness based solely on grace, sounds too good to be true. We want to think that we must have done something, even if small, to earn grace. But that would make grace to be something other than grace. Or we might fear that there's some ulterior motive of the one who says, I'm, you're forgiven. We think that the offer of forgiveness isn't genuine. So in their case, they're thinking, he just didn't want to upset our father, now he's dead, maybe he'll take his revenge. But Joseph knew otherwise. He had seen the grace of God at work in his own life. He'd come to see God's goodness and God's sovereignty. That meant that he could. He now had a world view that says whatever happens, no matter how bad, no matter how evil the motivations of people, God is working all things together for good. That's the kind of worldview we need to freely forgive. If the father used the horrific events of the cross of his son to save me from my sin then how could I do anything but just as unconditionally forgive others? To not forgive is to presume to take upon myself the responsibility of 
bringing judgment on that person. I'm making myself out to be God when I refuse to forgive. I'm saying that I have the power of justice in my own hands. Joseph knows that God is God and he is not. Remember he said, do not fear for am I in the place of God? If there's any justice that's required, God can and will bring it. And so Joseph is free to forgive and just let it go. This incident of him forgiving his brothers is recorded in really in light of the blessings that Jacob gave to his 12 sons. And these blessings really are prophecies. See, he says, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. This means that each blessing is a statement, not just about the son in question as a person, but also about the tribes that would come from them. The son's actions have implications for their descendants. Did you notice, though, that none of the sons were rebuked for their actions in selling Joseph into slavery? None of them were rebuked for lying to their father for 20 years about what they'd done. God's good sovereignty in, in, in intending it for good meant that Jacob, along with Joseph, could forgive and speak as if the ten brothers had nothing to do with it. Now, as we look back on the history of the 12 tribes of Israel, sometimes we can see a clear connection between Jacob's words and the future destiny of the tribe or the condition of the tribe. For example, in verses 5 to 7, Simeon and Levi are addressed together. They're the only ones who aren't addressed individually. And he speaks of their violence because Simeon and Levi conspired together in an earlier incident in chapter 34 when the two brothers, in revenge for the rape of their sister by one man, tricked the men of this man's entire city to get circumcised. They came with the offer of peace and said, we will live in peace with you. The only thing we ask is that all your men are circumcised. So it was a, it was a treaty, but it was, it was all a trick. When the men were still in pain from the procedure, they attacked and killed them. So that's the violence that he speaks of. As a result, we're told that their tribes would be divided in Jacob and scattered in Israel. Now, when the Israelites came into the promised land, their territories were assigned to the tribes. See, on the left and the right, uh, Simeon's territory was contained within Judah and over time was actually just absorbed into the tribe of Judah. So by the time of Jesus, there was no distinct territory left for the tribe of Simeon. Levi didn't receive any allocation because the Levites were the priestly tribe. 
And so they lived within cities. They're marked by all those red dots that were distributed throughout all the tribes to function as priests to the tribes. Now, some of the other connections with the different brothers and tribes are not as clear to us, but they would have resonated with the people at the time. They would have seen the clear link between the identity and actions of their tribe's forefather, their patriarch, and their identity and their situation within the nation in the land. And we might question why a whole tribe of people should be made to live in the consequences of the actions of their distant forefather. What did the future Levites and Simeonites have to do with the violence committed by Levi and Simeon? It's interesting to observe that this kind of question is actually still under debate in the world today. For example, in Australia, in the matter of reconciliation between European settlers and Indigenous Australians. Some people say there should have been no apology to the Aboriginal people because we are not the generation who committed the atrocities. We have a duty to apologize to... Uh, yes, so we're not the generation who, who did it. But others will say, well, this generation, though, still perpetuates those atrocities. We still have a duty to apologise and to act to reverse what happened. And the debate is over who's right. Each have a point to make in some way. However, each of those views are actually based on an individualistic view of humanity. Both of those views still say, in a sense, uh, it's the present that matters and it's me and my actions that matters over everything else. Well, the Bible gives us a different perspective on the nature of human beings. We've largely lost it today, although some cultures still retain it. This perspective tells us that each of us, while certainly being persons with personal individual responsibility before God, at the same time, stand in solidarity with those who came before us and who will come after us. A common humanity created by God in his image ties us all together. So just for the record, I believe the apology should have happened because while we were not the generation who were there back then, my ancestors came after colonisation. I can say I have nothing to do with it, yet I have a solidarity with all Australians, past, present and future. This solidarity ties us all together such that the New Testament speaks of us all being in Adam. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See how this solidarity that we have in Adam is key because it then also means that we may have the same solidarity in Christ. Christ. 
Adam's identity and actions determined the identity and destiny of his descendants. So because we are in Adam, we all die like Adam did, the just penalty for our sin. It's what our Friday community group has been exploring recently, the doctrine known as original sin. But because that's the way that God has constituted the human race, it also means that Jesus Christ, the second Adam, also determines the identity and destiny of all who are in Christ by faith. So if you feel bothered by the thought that God caused the one man Adam to shape who you were, remember that he did that in order that the one man Jesus Christ may shape who you are as a result of his mercy and grace. So as the characteristics of each tribe of Israel reflected their founding father, their ancestors, they were to look forward to the day when their identity would no longer be defined by that man in the past, Adam, Levi, Simeon, but it would be identified by the man to come, the man in whom they will find their full identity as sons and daughters of God. Now, with the tribe of Levi in particular, we also see the grace of God at work through that word of judgment. So the tribe was scattered. There was no allocation of territory. That scattering was God's judgment on the violence committed by Levi, but it was also because of God's unique purpose for them to be the priestly tribe. What a privilege to be entrusted with the high responsibility for leading all of God's people in worship. That's what our God does. He takes those who are unworthy, those who deserve judgment, and he makes his judgment a means of grace and blessing to restore them and to give them a position of honour and privilege. From Revelation 5, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The word ransom there comes from the slave market. You ransom a slave by paying the price to set them free. So he's saying you've taken people who were slaves, you've ransomed them, and now you've made them a kingdom of priests and they are kings, they shall reign. So see how this little seemingly obscure prophecy by Jacob is more than just a prediction of future events in the tribe of Levi. It actually points us to the glory of the Father's work in salvation in the Gospel of Jesus. We're not going to go through every son, but uh, we're going to focus in on uh, one of the sons that gives us an even clearer foreshadowing of the gospel. And this is in the blessing, the words given to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. 
your father's sons shall bow down before you. Now Judah was the fourth born son of Jacob, but he's spoken of here as if he's the firstborn. His three older brothers had forfeited their right to the role because of their actions. And we saw how Jacob had assumed that Joseph should be considered uh, for this position uh, because he was the firstborn son of Jacob's preferred wife, Rachel. And we heard of Jacob's, uh, Joseph's dreams of all his brothers bowing down to him. Those dreams were fulfilled when his brothers came and literally bowed down when they came to Egypt. But remember, the promise is always passed on through the son of God's choosing, not ours. So while the blessing of the covenant of Abraham applies to all the sons and the tribes, there was a particular aspect of the covenantal promise given to Abraham and it was given at the point when Abraham and Sarah's names were changed. It's in chapter 17. To Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And of Sarah, I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Out of Abraham and Sarah will come a great nation, but not just a great nation, many nations. And out of that great nation will also come kings. Judah's line will be the one through which this will happen. This kingly role of Judah is affirmed in the next few verses. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The lion is an image of royalty and of great strength. The lion's at the top of the food chain. It's no coincidence that the lion is featured on many countries' coat of arms because of the, the powerful image that it conveys. It conveys glory and the military might of the nation that it represents. We have a kangaroo and an emu. I wonder what that says about us. But verse 10 is very clear. Judah will be the home tribe of the king the base of the monarchy, but it will only be an interim arrangement because it's in preparation for something greater. See, it's until tribute comes to him. And that little phrase, until tribute comes to him, is a little bit hard to translate from the Hebrew. And this uh, this is the ESV. It's one possible way to translate it, but... There are other ancient translations of the Old Testament that show us that a better translation of that phrase is until he comes to whom it belongs. So Judah is holding the ruler's staff and the scepter 
but he's only holding until another one comes who actually owns those and he'll hand them over to him. We know for certain that this ruler who comes to whom the scepter and the ruler's staff belongs is Jesus. He is the rightful heir. Reading again from Revelation chapter 5. I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, God the Father, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. I hope you notice that this passage contains the passage we looked at earlier in reference to Levi and Simeon. Taking the scroll is an image of receiving a kingdom. Jesus, the son, the lion of the tribe of Judah, approaches the father on his throne and is given by the father not only authority to rule himself, but authority to include us in his reign so that we are a kingdom and priests to God. We will reign on the earth. Last week, we looked at how Joseph's presence in Egypt meant that the blessing of the Lord that was on him flowed out to the nation of Egypt and the people of Egypt, and how that was a pattern for what we see through the Bible and beyond. This blessing comes to the nations among whom his people live as they seek the welfare of the city. But we also saw that this blessing was in a sense a side benefit of the main project that God was on about in saving his people, in keeping his promise to them. God had much more in store than just a general well-being for the nations. That's the difference between what we call common grace and special grace, which we saw in the story of Noah. Common grace is God's goodness to all people, regardless of who they are, and even in spite of how evil they are. 
Jesus said he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God is good to all creation. He promised to never again bring a flood like he did at the time of Noah, even though people are wicked from birth. And in common grace, he brings good things to nations when his people are living among them. Special grace is directed specifically towards those on whom he set his covenant love, those whom he has chosen from among the nations. Israel knew a measure of God's grace that was way beyond what all the nations knew, way beyond what Egypt knew by having Jacob living amongst them. They alone lived in the full benefits of the covenant promise. And we see this special grace come to completion in Jesus Christ. In him we see God not just acting in a general benevolence and provision for the whole world, but in a very specific action of taking away the sins of his people at the cross. Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah. He was the heir to the Jewish throne because he was from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David. He was the great high priest who fulfilled all of the Jewish law. He bore in himself the sins and the transgressions of the nation, the people of Israel. That's why Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. And Paul said, the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this specific act of special grace that God did in Jesus Christ for the Jews when held hand in hand with the Abrahamic promise to bless all nations through him means that that act of special grace is now extended not just to Jews but to people of all nations. Common grace is still in place because of the Abrahamic promise. We continue to see the, the good work of God, even in places that feel forsaken by him. As Karen Norman is there in China, locked down, unable to really go anywhere. She has to wear a mask and gloves and have her temperature checked every time she goes out in and out. And it might feel like that place is God forsaken, but God's common grace is there because, well, for a start, he has Karen there, one of his people, who is still bringing blessing. And she says the local people are a bit taken aback at her and the other internationals who have chosen to stay when they could leave. So this, this common grace is still at work. But there now stands the offer in the name of Jesus of this special grace. It's an offer that is extended to all, but it will ultimately only be known by those that God chose in Christ from before the foundation of the world, who 
hear the message of the gospel and respond in faith. That's the real blessing that the promise spoke of, the promise through Judah. Not mere temporal blessing for this life, but a blessing that goes beyond this world, beyond the grave into the new creation. And that leads us to the next verse. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Now this is a description not of Judah, but of the one who will come and take the ruler's staff from his hands. What kind of ruler will he be? What will it be like to be a participant in his kingdom? Some Bible scholars believe that Jesus was dropping a hint when on the final Passover with his friends, he sent them into the city to go and find a donkey. And he says specifically, make sure you untie it. Well, that, it's a no-brainer. Of course, if you're going to collect a donkey, you'd have to untie it. But maybe he was saying those words to remind them of this statement of the donkey's colt being bound, being tied. These verses paint a poetic picture of abundance. He uses images that may not stand out to us because we already live in abundance and prosperity. We have an abundance that would have been unthinkable to most people in the ancient world, except those who were kings and emperors. Two signs of a person's prosperity would have been the size of their vineyards and the size of their flocks and herds. A regular family might own a few vines. But this person here is described as having so many vines that he can afford to use them as hitching rails for his donkey. And even though the donkey will eat the vine and the grapes on it, it doesn't matter because he has so many vines. The wine is as abundant as water. He has so much wine, he can wash his clothes in it. Verse 12 has a double layer of meaning in in all this picture of abundance. He has dark eyes resembling red wine and he has white teeth resembling milk. Dark eyes and white teeth were signs of good health. Healthy, clear eyes. Teeth that not only hadn't fallen out, but were white. Meant that you lived well. Meant that you could look forward to a long life. So it's a picture of good health and good life. It's also a picture of abundance. One effect of drinking wine is dilated pupils. Because the alcohol slows down the reaction time of the eye muscles, all all our muscles. So that a person who's been drinking wine might appear to have a darker than normal eyes. Because if he's inside drinking and then he walks outside, it takes a while for his pupils to, to shrink again. And one effect of drinking milk is that your teeth appear whiter because they're coated in milk. 
We're being called to imagine a situation of such abundance that wine and milk have replaced bread and water as the staple diet. Those things that are considered luxury are now commonplace. This is a picture of the new creation. The new creation that all who have been redeemed by the Lion of Judah look forward to. A creation that's been renewed by the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Restored to its pristine abundance and fruitfulness. Well, I hope you've seen as we've journeyed through Genesis that it's Jesus Christ who is the focus and the goal, not just of Genesis, but of the whole Bible. He is the one who gives the scriptures their meaning. Everything before Christ foreshadows and points forward to him. The characters we've encountered from Abraham, uh, from Adam and Eve to Abraham, right through to Joseph and his brothers, had their eyes fixed through faith on Jesus Christ. Even though their vision was dim and blurry and they could only see him like a shadow on the distant horizon. But today we can look back on these stories and we can see him clearly in them because he has come, because he has revealed himself to us. He's made his full glory known to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that all you do, all you are on about, is about pointing us to see your Son and his glory and his love and his grace. About showing us uh, his lavish grace that he has brought to us by coming, laying down his life, rising again, that we might be redeemed, that we might be made a kingdom of priests, that we might be restored as your people, as part of a new creation. Father, we can't imagine what that will be like exactly. We can't imagine what it will be for us to reign on the earth. But what we can know, what we can see clearly is the love that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. Father, all these stories that we've heard over the the months of all of these people who had their eyes fixed in faith on you and what you were doing in their lives, we ask that you might make us like them, that we might be unwavering in our faith and our trust in in you and knowing that you are working all things together for good and for your glory. But most of all, Father, we ask that you make us like Jesus. We know your promise that you are doing all things for good and that good is that we might be conformed to the image of your Son. Help us, Father, in the day-to-day of life to think what does it mean for me to be a child of God? What does it mean for me to be like Jesus with this great goal of seeing him face to face and to be changed in the twinkling of an eye to be just like him? Father, all the lessons that we've learned from the people of the book of Genesis, we ask that you'll enable us to remember, to see that we are just like them, and just like them we need to trust in you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.